The 11th America's Food and Beverage Show, the largest America's focused food and beverage event in the hemisphere, will open September 24th through 26th at the Miami Beach Convention Center, offering international buyers and sellers three action-packed days of unparalleled business and networking opportunities. Expected to attract more than 5,000 retailers, distributors, importers, food service professionals, and exhibitors from across the U.S. and around the globe, the 2008 America's Food and Beverage Show will debut three new pavilions in response to buyer demand, wine, equipment, and kosher. Adding even more excitement is the expanded organics and natural Foods Pavilion, the annual America's Chef Competition organized by Le Cordon Blue College of Culinary Arts, the new product showcase and return of the Hot Talks Parade, an exclusive signature event saluting South Florida's top chefs. With more than $200 million in sales for exhibitors since inception, the goal for the 11th America's Food and Beverage Show is to facilitate deals between buyers and sellers, importers and exporters worldwide. The criteria for success are simple. How many deals were made? Registration for the 2008 America's Food and Beverage Show is now open online at www www.americasfoodandbeverage.com or by contacting the World Trade Center Miami at 305-871-7910. For additional details on the 2008 America's Food and Beverage Show, contact Yelena Meisel at J-M-E-I-S-E-L at worldtrade.org or phone 305-871-7910. Seaboard Marine is an ocean transportation company that provides direct regular service between the United States and the Caribbean Basin, Central and South America. Seaboard Marine's success in the region for nearly 25 years has enabled it to expand into new markets, now serving nearly 40 ports in over 20 countries. Seaboard Marine's facilities include a private terminal of nearly 70 acres at the Port of Miami. Seaboard Marine carries more cargo to and from the Port of Miami than any other carrier. Although this facility complies with and exceeds all governmental security mandates, it operates seven days a week. 365 days a year, a unique convenience for its customers. Seaboard Marine serves these routes from Miami, Bahamas, Grand Cayman, Colombia, Dominican Republic, Eastern Caribbean, Haiti, Jamaica, North Central America, South Central America, Venezuela, and the West Coast of South America, including Peru, Chile, Bolivia. Seaboard Marine, a trade leader in the Western Hemisphere. No one covers local, national, and world news like Rich Rothman. And no one covers local, national, and world shipping like DHL. DHL, customer service is back in shipping. Fresh talk with a South Florida flavor. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. This is the Rich Rothman Show on 1360 WKAT. It's definitely still his show. But I've hijacked it for a day. Larry Miliang filling in for Rich Rothman on the Rich Rothman Show here on 1360 WKAT. Our digits, 305-447-3201. Check us out live on the worldwide net at 1360WKAT.com. Visit us at therichrothmanshow.com. Oh, yes, and iTunes. Don't forget iTunes. I love when you give us a little iTunes plug. I like it. I like, but take, I like how you... us in their pocket. It makes me happy. It's a beautiful thing. I love being in people's pocket. Another beautiful thing. Yeah. We've got uh, joining us today here... On the Rich Rothman Show, Ramon Bueno. Ramon Bueno. Now, Ramon Bueno is an expert, and, and, and I say that, and I don't even say it lightly. I say it strongly. Rich, Ramon Bueno is an expert when it comes to the Caribbean and the climate changes in the Caribbean and how that may affect current weather conditions, which includes hurricanes. So he's here to educate us a little bit about the situation. Obviously, we just had Ike give us a big scare, you know, and, and we were talking offline before we came back from break on how uh, Ike was bearing down over seven, eight, ten days, South Florida watching closely, intently, yet, as I said before we went to break, it, it, it was never really a watch. There was never a hurricane warning. And all we heard on TV was is that past 
hurricanes can't predict future hurricanes. You know, past performance doesn't dictate future results. And and I always I heard that through the entire thing. And and one of the things that came to my mind, never thinking I would get an opportunity to interview someone like you, is the fact that some of the uh, some of the conditions, some of the situations as far as our environment may affect indeed how some of these uh, hurricanes courses go. And, and as I was saying, I took a turn that was a historic, I mean, not even talked about on TV, but it's an historic turn where storms like Ike generated from more or less the area where Ike were in 150 years, all basically either turned north or hit shoreside above Florida, never really hit Florida per se. And this was one that decided to go south. And none of these hurricanes of the size have ever done that before. Right. And so while South Florida was lucky not getting hit, it certainly was an anomaly as far as storms coming from that region go. And I felt that it had a lot to do, not with the high-pressure system that pushed it down, but a lot of the different changes, a lot of the uh, environmental right. things that are involved in what our weather patterns are. I think you can sense now, every year I, I find myself saying, God, this is the hottest summer ever. It's the hottest summer ever. No, maybe it's the hottest summer ever, but there are reasons why we feel that way. Talk to us a little bit about how the, these climate changes affect not only the storms, but our everyday life and, and you know the world we live in. Uh, hi, Larry, uh, and, and the audience. Um, you know, I work at the Stockholm Environment Institute, which is affiliated with uh, uh, Tufts University in the Boston area, and, and in, a, in a group that uh, focuses on climate economics. So one of the things that we're concerned about is how everybody asks, you know, all right, all this discussion about climate change and, and what's it going to cost and, and all that. So we pay attention to to uh, to these phenomena. And uh, uh, recently we've had a chance, uh, some members of our team, uh, Frank Ackerman and Elizabeth Stanton, did a study last year of the state of Florida looking at the next 100 years, uh, what are its vulnerabilities uh, with regard to climate change in, in terms of higher temperatures, higher sea level uh, increases and so on. And then uh, most recently this... This uh, spring, we did a, a smaller uh, study focused on the Caribbean. Again, looking at the same kind of things, uh, along with uh, another member of the team, Cornelia Hersfeld. And uh, so the question is, you know, the science, the scientists that focus on climate change, uh, they're increasingly not really concerned with the debate, is it happening or not. They, they're pretty clear on the science and the forces at play that, that are leading through higher emissions to, to uh, higher temperatures and then higher sea level. There may be details you argue about, but the, the fundamental forces that are understood. Uh, the, the same is not true about economic projections. The economists disagree about, you know, uh, even, even if the majority say, yes, this is real and, and it's important to, uh, to take it into account and to do something about it, right. many of them say, it, let's wait, let's go slow, it's too costly. Uh, hmm. Now... How, how much more costly could our environment really? I mean, that that's a strange angle to take. I understand money is such a big issue. No, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's a valid concern, right? I mean, it, it, the the argument is it's going to be too much of a drain on the economy to do something about it, slow down growth, loss of jobs, and all that stuff. So, the flip side of that is, well, how much does it cost to wait? How much does it cost to uh, not act? It's the cost of inaction, uh, and we decided that. Um, you know, um, there's been a series of studies that the group have done on precisely that, the cost of inaction. You look at two possible scenarios, one optimistic, uh, which basically assumes that uh, the countries around the world get together, get their act together quickly, start acting on the kinds of things that are going to slow down and limit climate change. Uh, basically, 
uh, slowing down emissions of fossil fuel uh, uh, greenhouse gases that are piling up in the atmosphere. Those are the main drivers of all these anticipated uh, changes. Um, now, um, so you do two scenarios. That's the optimistic. You limit these to the point uh, where uh, scientists agree if we keep certain concentrations and they measure it in parts per million of these greenhouse gases, say, you know, this is figure this quarter, 450 parts per million, we have a chance that limiting uh, temperature increases this century to, say, maybe no more than two degrees additional and uh, sea level maybe only like seven inches, something like that. Uh, right. That assumes that countries get together and reduce emissions by mid-century by like 50%, and the U.S., because it contributes more to the problem, maybe by 80%. At the other end, you do another scenario, which is a more pessimistic scenario, which is just take current trends and let them run their course unimpeded to the end of the century. Now you're looking at things more in the range of uh, temperature increases of 10 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. You're looking at uh, sea level rise of maybe not 7 inches, but maybe 45 inches. So now... Um, the question then is, well, one way you can answer the question of how much does it cost to wait is to use your best information available to put a price or, or assign some cost to both scenarios. You know, uh, what are the key things that may, that, that may affect an area? In a case like Florida, key things are, you know, the coastline, right? Rising sea levels are going to affect right. uh, loss of beaches, loss of, co loss of land. We've, uh, seen that. We've seen all of the erosion right, that, of the beaches already. And in an area where, where there's a tremendous amount of people, a uh, number of people living within a short distance of the ocean, a tremendous amount of coastal development. That's a, a high vulnerability. Uh, other things in the, in the area like the Caribbean and, and Florida is um, uh, with rising sea levels, you also get uh, uh, storm surges during storms that reach much deeper inland than you're used to. Um, that, that causes further erosion, more damage, and so on. Uh, more exposure to deaths from, from violent storms, that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that the scientists uh, regarding hurricanes, for example, it may be that uh, th they're not saying that they're going to be more storms, but there seems to be a, a consensus that what, what is more likely is that some of those storms are going to be stronger. Uh, so, so while there may be no, not a greater frequency of storms overall, there may be a greater frequency of high category storms, category fours or fives, that sort of thing. Uh, so we try to uh, look at that and uh, you you try to assign costs to both of these scenarios in, with regard to certain things like loss of tourism revenue, damage to infrastructure, and factors like that. And then the difference is what you stand to lose by waiting. Or the flip side of that is the gains you can do by acting now. Now, now part of your research I noticed here, you, you did a summary of the region in the Caribbean as far as the cost of global inaction on climate change. And you did a case study in Puerto Rico as well. I'm very interested in hearing some of your results on that. Well, the, uh, the, 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 just to put it in, in perspective, what we, the, the previous study that was done on Florida, mm -hmm. uh, when it, fo you know, it focused on a lot of things, but when in, in certain four categories uh, that were singled out, loss of tourism, greater damage from more intense hurricanes, uh, additional electricity costs, and real estate, um, it came up with categories of costs by the year 2100 of some $345 billion a year wow. in relation to a the year. state's economy that represents something like 5% of, of the income that year. 
you know, okay, these are projections. And now it doesn't, on the other hand, it doesn't include looking at losses in agriculture, uh, what, how to deal with water crisis and that sort of thing, or health, which are also significant. So just, but that's just to put it in context. When we did a similar analysis in the Caribbean, not necessarily using the same categories, but in the Caribbean, uh, the, the main categories we looked at were loss of tourism. The Caribbean is one of the most dependent regions in the world as far as tour on tourism. Of uh, the greater damage from stronger, uh, intense storms and also damage to infrastructure from rising sea levels. And we've, we came up with numbers projecting across 24 islands um, that by the year 2100, it's some 46 billion a year or 20, nearly 22% of the region's economy. Now, that's a devastating, wow, that is devastating projection. And that doesn't really look at things like further loss of agriculture or health impacts, uh, which the region already is suffering from, you know, uh, overtaxed, uh, not, not in the sense of taxes, but um, uh, health systems that are uh, maxed out. Well, I'm curious, is what, what do the naysayers have to say about something like this? I mean, obviously, you have those people who, who listen to, to your studies and understand that, that, in fact, the impact can be there and it could be catastrophic. And then there's other people who are going to look at it and, and kind of take a business-as-usual stand on this and ignore these signs. And, and, and what's going to happen is in 25 and 50 and 75 years, when some of these things come to fruition, right. to have a reactive position on this rather than a, than a proactive position on this seems to be kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Would you agree? Uh, very much so. I mean, one of the things that uh, these cost of inaction studies, and again, cost of inaction is not the, the full cost. It's actually the difference between acting and letting things run their course. Uh, but these are significant, significant costs. Um, the thing that it does is help educate oneself about what is what, precisely what we were talking, right? What is the cost of waiting? Because uh, clearly it's going to cost to do something about, you know, slowing down emissions. I mean, it's our economy, industrial economies that were based, they grew on, on using fossil fuels. And that's how that's how the world got to where it is now for the industrial countries. You know, one of the things that, that's good that happened in the last 20, 30 years is that a huge number of people around the world are rising out of poverty to a better standard of living. Of course. But they're doing so because they have no choice with the same means that we have done so, which is using industrialization and fossil-based fuels and all. There are hundreds of millions more, billions, that want to do the same thing, and justifiably so. We can't turn around and say, uh, sorry, we don't want to have higher temperatures. You have to uh, uh, st uh, stop growing. The, the problem is that we're all in this together. Once the emissions get into the atmosphere, it affects the entire world. So the entire world has to act. For a region like the Caribbean, the tragedy is that what, when you look at their emissions, what they contribute to the global warming problem in terms of their own release of greenhouse gases is minimal. It's in, nearly insignificant in relation to the total world uh, emissions. And yet, when you look at these numbers, the exposure they have to the damages, the poten potential consequences, are devastating. So, it's a, a, you know, fundamentally, if we were in that situation, we would, what would you say? This is not fair. So, so this is a, 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 a way to sort of frame that. Obviously, these are preliminary studies. You, you know, it doesn't mean that one can count exactly the amount. Of course. But it gives us a, a, a look at the scale of what we're talking about. So, and, and the other thing that it shows is that a lot of these things get worse over the decades, get worse over time. So people who say, um, you know, right now, I don't want, you know, it's too costly. I don't want to deal with this right now. You're, you're basically saying, I don't care what happens to the next generation or to my children's generation or grandchildren. Pay me now uh, or pay me later. Pay me now or pay a lot more later. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the message that comes out. And talking about that, environmentalists have been 
fighting an uphill battle for so many years. As long as I've been alive, I can remember in the seventies growing up as a kid in New York, and and and, and again not being too being too young to understand the initiative, and, and and you know everybody has their opinions, and you know as growing up I've had mixed opinions, but not necessarily been the most uh, educated in, in in the subject. But the truth is, it's becoming more and more evident that the greenhouse effect exists. Now, if this affects climate negatively in the Caribbean, that means it affects it in Florida. Now, I bring it back to hurricanes. We see that hurricanes aren't a Florida problem anymore. Obviously, Florida, you know, Florida is not the only place that gets hit by hurricanes. Houston, we've seen, we've seen, you know, we've seen Galveston, Texas get hit. We've seen, we've seen New Orleans, and over the past few years, we've seen even North Carolina get, you know, uh, get hit with hurricanes and storms that come up through either the Gulf or come up off the Atlantic. At what point does Congress get involved and say, you know what, we're starting to learn more and more that this indeed is a problem. What right. can we do right. to help? I mean, right. at what point does the Congress, what point does our local government, what time, what, at what point does the American government say, you know, enough is enough, we need to do something about yeah. this? Uh, that's, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, the answer, obviously, it's a, it's a complex one, but it depends on a groundswell of, of, of people putting pressure on the Congress, whether it's citizens, legislators, business people. Uh, you know, a lot of people have a stake in this. I, I mean, I think... I think the thing about this problem is that because it's a global problem, until people realize that there is no, I get out of it, you pay the price, I get out of it, eventually we all suffer from this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, compared to a couple of hundred, hundred years ago, the, the number of people who live in coastal cities, large cities is around the world is huge. So, I mean, if some of these, if we let some of these worst possible outcomes take place, we're talking about things that have not been experienced before in terms of the number of people it's going to affect, how it's going to affect them. Uh, you know, cities like Miami are highly vulnerable. And the Florida study, uh, the, the, some using geographic information system, um, there, we, we have some maps that show the zone in the, in the state that will be vulnerable to a flooding of, say, of, of, to an increase in sea level of 27 inches, which according to the business as usual sort of scenario would occur around 2060, according to the scenarios that, that data that, that, that we use. Um, you look at the map and, and there's a fringe around the entire coast of the state, which looks skinny, but when you look at what's in there in terms of population, it's nearly 10% of the population of the state, one and a half million people. In some counties, it's 20% or more. Uh, when you look at the list of types of facilities and, and things that are there, it's just an, a stunning list of, you know, power plants, schools, hospitals, churches, you know, and uh, uh, residential and commercial real estate. It just goes on and on and on and on. So that's the kind of thing that um, it's hard to it's it's hard to say. Let's just take a look and see what happens, and 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 we're willing to pay the price later on because there is not necessarily a second chance. Now, now what are some of the little things we can do, obviously, to to, to help? Obviously, you know, the energy situation has been such an issue. You know, obviously, with with gas prices hovering around four dollars a gallon, another pet peeve of mine in trying to understand why the world economy has allowed something like this to happen. But nonetheless. It hasn't dissuaded people from getting in their cars and driving from point A to point B. People are driving as much as they've ever have, and you know that the emissions from these cars have a negative effect on our environment. Offshore drilling in Florida—that's something that's been a very touchy subject as well. Right. I, I've got to think, even though I, there are pros and cons, and this isn't about my opinion on the subject, right. Right. but in looking at the cons of offshore drilling, you—you you got to imagine that that would have an ill effect on Florida's environment and maybe on the world environment if right. you start taking into consideration other places where they're already doing offshore drilling. Right. Um, 
I guess my question, and in, in, in trying to get a layman's term answer from you on this, is what can we do? Not just, you know, from throw, from being green in our own home. What can we do as a society to to help kind of hedge or curb what yeah. these studies are showing to be inevitable? Yeah. What can we do? Um, that that's a fair question, and I think it's the one that a lot of people, you know, run have running through their minds because in the in the facing the magnitude of some of the potential consequences uh, of this nature, it's very easy to feel bleak and powerless. Um, and, and and the answer is that ultimately the solution requires concerted action by all the major players of the world. Now, how does one get there? That's a whole other question. But you know. F- People start within their own lives, right? You, you know, you, tr- you try to be more waste, uh, less wasteful, safe, you know, b- uh, buy things that are more efficient in terms of the consumption of the, the bad emissions and that sort of thing. Um, you know, cities and states are taking action. You know, because the national government has been sort of waiting on this sort of thing, a lot of communities around the country, cities, states, uh, counties, have been taking steps to say, you know, we're going we're gonna to make sure that we change our habits uh, whether it's in regulations about uh, new development, to make sure you're not building right where a few years from now those buildings may be uh, may be threatened. Whether it's you know the type of uh, b- uh, efficiency in buildings and transportation systems, that sort of thing. So those things are happening all around the country, and and to the degree that more of these things happen, obviously that gap, that cost of inaction, you know, will be shrinking little by little. But there's no substitute for ultimately enough pressure from local communities, from representatives from the various states uh, to to drive the message to the national government. Because, uh, you know, Florida, for example, is 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 doing a lot. And, and would, you know, when you consider all 50 states, Florida is, is doing more than 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 many states are doing. It's leading the way in, in, in many regards. And yet, you, you know, you could do all you can and still that not be enough if, if the rest of the country is not jumping if, they, if they're not buying into yeah. it, it it's and it's the same thing with the rest of the countries right people say this is sterile debate around the world about you know the industrial countries have contributed to the problem getting us to where we are right now now so the rest of the world justifiably says listen you got us in this mess you got to take the lead mm-hmm. in getting out of this mess a lot of the you know the u.s and, and some other uh, industrialized countries are saying well yeah but now china and india you know they're contributing they're starting to contribute substantial amounts so what do you do? I mean, you can't tell the rest of the world, stop development, like we don't develop like we did, uh, and we won't act until you do. They're basically looking for lead from the people who have the resources. So when you look at the big picture, there's no way forward that prevents a, a stalemate between the climate crisis and this development crisis. You can't stop development uh, around the world without a transformation in the kind of technology and industries that drive all development, you know, you have to get away from the kind of things that are getting us into the problem and, get, and move towards now towards a, a better technology that's going to produce jobs, opportunities, all kinds of things. But we need to; it won't happen by itself. It needs to be, uh, you know, there are investments that have to be made. You have to push in that direction if you want to get there. The Caribbean and climate change: the costs of inaction. I'm talking to Ramon Bueno here on the Rich Rothman Show on 1360 WKAT 305447 are the digits. You know, I, I have this. Almost ignorant question. We we grew up. We learned about living close to the equator, and it's obviously warmer as you're closer to the equator. But but we're finding as as I did this weekend. I traveled to New York City, and I can remember New York City after Labor Day. School would start. It was fall. 
it was fall and it was 50 degrees and it was fall and there was no such thing in September as a hot day. Well, on Sunday, I walked to the St. Gennaro's Feast and it was 92 degrees. I came back from New York City with a suntan in the middle of September because I walked around for a few hours in Little Italy in 92 degree weather. Wow. And I scratch myself in the head and I say, well, this isn't about Florida. This isn't about, I mean, th th this is a situation that's affecting not the entire country. It's affecting the whole world. Climate patterns are changing everywhere. My godfather telling me over dinner, he says, Lawrence, I, you know, for years, the snow plows would come through here when there was three or four inches of snow or more during the winter. I haven't seen a snow plow in six years. And it makes you wonder, a, a New York, a city that was always a winter town where it snowed. Some of this stuff's not going on, and the weather, weather patterns are changing. Yeah. I, I got to imagine that some of this stuff can no longer be ignored. Right. I don't know if you agree with me on that, Armand. No, no, I agree that, that, that uh, we can't ignore the, the trends, and the trends are being, you know, there are thousands of scientists around the world looking at this, studying this stuff in, very, in detail, taking measurements. You know, and, and as the debate has, has evolved over the last uh, many years, you know, and some people have raised questions that more measurements have been made. And, and you know, so the, the, the understanding of what's going on is, is deeper and deeper and, and, and trends are not slowing down. Now, it is true that, you know, there are cyclical patterns that take many decades to work themselves out, right? There, there, if you look at the 20th century, there's always been periods where there are more hurricanes and then a slowdown and all that. Now, the question is, are we seeing just that, or are we seeing the beginning of, of a, a much a whole new level of, of storms and intensity? Um, I remember as a, as a kid hearing people saying, oh, I remember in the 30s and the 40s, you know, and everybody in, in different countries would have the name of a hurricane, you know, San Cipriano or this or that, that caused devastation. But it stood out as the one that everybody remembered. Uh, it, it, is, it seems to be true now that there are more that people remember. Yeah, there seems to be more time. memorable weather events uh, so, than there used so to be. So there are different things going on here all at once, and, and we just have to learn about it. The Caribbean and climate change, the cost of inaction, the study done through Tufts University. You can check the full report out online on www.gdae.org slash caribbeanclimate.html. Uh, I wanted to plug that for you because I find this to be incredibly interesting. And, and, and people who are listening today need to understand this, is that sometimes in life we don't necessarily understand certain things. That's when we need to become most interested so that we can come to our own determinations. I mean, there are a lot of people that, that will tell you uh, humbug with the environment. And, and, you know, sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind, business as usual. That kind of attitude has been very typical over the last 30, 40 years. But the warnings have been there. I remember being in elementary school in the 70s, hearing about the greenhouse and, and hearing about when you become an adult, you're going to see this and this and this and oh, whatever. Yeah. And it's happening. Well, you know, one of the things that even, even these kinds of studies, uh, you know, when we look at these pessimistic scenarios, the optimistic scenario, when you look at the, the kind of sea level rise projected in 100 years or by the end of the century, uh, these don't take into account uh, additional potentially catastrophic uh, uh, sea level rise effects from things like uh, collapse of uh, Greenland ice caps and Antarctica. Now, those things usually are expected that it would take a very long time, and yet, uh, you see in that recent a few years, ago? In re yeah, I mean, even it's recently, gone. when you read about uh, pieces the size of Manhattan. Uh, falling off and you know that that's that introduces a possibility of, of a of a very sudden not just a gradual 
evaporation and melting over, over centuries, but it raises the possibility that, which is what many scientists have said, there's a threshold beyond which we don't want to go because the forces at play are, are, are such that it could lead to sudden, uh, it's, it's called nonlinear, you know, not, not, not straight line predictable uh, effects that, that could lead to something that instead of talking about a couple of feet of sea level rise, then you start talking about dozens of feet. You're talking about measuring in meters. Now, at that point, we're not talking about how much of the coast of, the, you know, of southern Florida will go go under you're talking about how much of the state or you know that kind of thing <laughs> you're talking about where are you moving to north carolina yeah. or south carolina yeah, because yeah. florida is not going to be around and yeah. i don't mean to you know to, to to fear to put the fear into people but it's obviously the possibility when chunks of ice the size of the city of manhattan are falling off and i think there was a picture several months ago in a major magazine where we, i think you saw a polar bear on a little piece of ice where that same place 20 30 years ago was was the biggest iceberg you could ever see and i and again i, I repeat for those of you the Caribbean and climate change, the cost of inaction. This is a very interesting study. I'm here with Ramon Bueno. Again, you can get the full report online, www.gdae.org, caribbeanclimate.html. Any other information, any other websites that you can direct our listeners to? Well, the, 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 the website has uh, some other studies that the group has done. The one I would also recommend looking at the one in Florida because it was more in-depth, and it goes into much, uh, much more detail about describing the kind of things that, that one needs to be concerned about. Um, one other thing to point out is that, you know, Florida and the Caribbean are, are not only next to each other, but they also have very strong historical ties in terms of populations that are here from the Caribbean, in terms of, you know, trade, uh, cultural ties. When you see that Florida is highly vulnerable, but the Caribbean is incredibly vulnerable to these kinds of things, what one has to con be concerned about additional um, uh, interactions, like if, if, if 50, 80 years from now, some of these economies, like, you know, if, if you see yeah, the yeah. tables in the report, the, the implications for some of the islands in the Caribbean are just staggering. Catastrophic. Catastrophic. It means that those economies start ceasing to function. You, you know, you're basically suffering so much damage on an annual basis that you cannot get off your feet, basically. What, if you're a family, if you're, you know, what do families in that situation do? What would we do? You would look for, well, if there are no prospects, I'm going to go somewhere else. So you, maybe you look at the next island. But if the other island is also in a similar boat, they're all going to be in a, in where a are you going to go? You're going to look to Central America, South America. If you have strong ties to Florida, you're going to look to Florida. So, I mean, who is equipped to deal with all of this? This is a case where, you know, precaution, acting to prevent worst outcomes, even if they're less likely is a wise investment. This is life insurance. You know, yes. if you own a home, the chances that your home is going to burn down next year are very, very small. But most people, if they can afford it, get insurance. Of course they do. You don't, you don't want to be left vulnerable for that. Exactly. And I got to tell you that 21st century, we've got to be aware of our environment more than ever. Studies like this need to be looked at by common folk. Don't think that, it's, that they're talking above your head. You need to learn about this because it could affect you in your lifetime. Ramon bueno, Ramon bueno, thank you very, very much for joining us here on the Rich Rothman Show on 1360 WKAT. I'm sure we will have you back soon to talk a little more. I know Rich wanted to talk to you. He told me to say hello to you. But nonetheless, it's been a very interesting segment here, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. The Rich Rothman Show here at 1360 WKAT. We've got to pay some bills. We'll be back. If life has taught me anything, it's all about the little things, oh yeah. Pizza Fusion, America's greenest restaurant, is now open in Weston, saving the earth one pizza at a time. Pizza Fusion serves a gourmet and organic menu of pizza, focaccia sandwiches, wraps, desserts, beer, and wine. All Pizza Fusion items are served in their purest form. 
untainted by the artificial additives such as sweeteners, pesticides, preservatives, and hormones. Enjoy our fresh salads, breads, dips, wraps, and pizzas, all made to order upon your request. With specialty toppings like goat cheese, Key West shrimp, wild lobster, spinach, eggplant, feta cheese, and more. It's all organic, natural, and delicious at Pizza Fusion. Come in today to Pizza Fusion at 2378 Weston Road in Weston and build your own pizza. Call 954-641-5353 for more information. Pizza Fusion in Weston. Saving the earth one pizza at a time. The Port of Miami is the second largest economic engine in our community, providing an annual economic base of over $16 billion and over 100,000 jobs. These are high-paying in-demand jobs, very much coveted by other cities and ports throughout the Americas. We're fortunate to have this business, and of that $16 billion, international trade and cargo at the port accounts for over $13 billion per year, a significant fact, as well as a significant economic impact for all of us, the Port of Miami, working to enhance and contribute to the economic success of our country, further reinforcing Miami and South Florida as the gateway to the Americas. A new terminal that is larger than some mid-sized U.S. airport. The new Miami International Airport. A new 350-space ground-level short-term parking lot. The new Miami International Airport. The only U.S. airport with sleep pods. The new Miami International Airport. The international gateway to the Americas with more flights to South America than all U.S. airports combined. The new Miami International Airport. And coming soon, 61 new retail and food shops to add to your airport savoir-faire. Come experience the new Miami International Airport and watch us move towards the future. The new Miami International Airport. You know where I'm spending my next romantic evening out with my wife? At Biltmore Carl Gables Miami, a golf and spa resort. Maybe we'll start the evening with a five-star dinner at the newly opened Fontana Ristorante, enjoying their authentic Italian cuisine prepared by renowned chef Gaetano Accione. Or perhaps we'll dine at the acclaimed Palme d'Or restaurant. Zagat called Palme d'Or one of the best restaurants in the country. South Florida's best restaurants are at the Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami. On Thursday after dinner, we could really enjoy Biltmore Unplugged. Live jazz music poolside at the Cascade Bar and Grill. Fine food and live jazz is awaiting your next romantic evening at Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami, a golf and spa resort. Visit www.biltmorehotel.com for more information or call them at 1-800-747-1926 for reservations. The perfect night out is at Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami, a golf and spa resort. No one covers local, national, and world news like Rich Rothman. And no one covers local, national, and world shipping like DHL. DHL. Customer service is back in shipping. Live from Atlantic Radio Network in Coral Gables, Florida. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? This is the Rich Rothman Show on 1360 WKAT. So run, run, run. Tell me what we got to do to come, come, come closer together. I got to tell you, this music's great. Rich Rothman Show, 1360 WKAT. want to thank Ramon Bueno for coming on with us, talking a little bit of environment, talking about climate changes. I'm going to look over that report, and, and I've got to tell you, anyone who knows me... It's bedtime reading. ...would say, it to, your kids would say to me, Larry, you're faking it because it's a radio show, and you just kind of... 
he's the guy that you had on. No, it is incredibly interesting to see some of the research and some of the numbers they came up with in this report. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. I'm curious, as we're in the last half hour of the show, is Mr. Jackson available for us yet? Hi, Larry. Ah, there he is. There he is, Bruce Jackson. I have been dying to talk to you all week, and I've been looking so forward to having you on the show. I'm filling in today for Rich Rothman, but uh, I am a New Yorker who just came back from New York a couple of days ago on visit and got an opportunity for the first time to see the famed Ground Zero. And I had uh, I had avoided the area for seven years uh-huh. and finally decided I needed to come to terms and go see what I call the hole, hole in the ground. And uh, devastating is one of the words I can use. I can find a whole bunch of other adjectives. But we all know what that day represented to everyone in this country, some people more than others. But uh, I am so happy to have you on the show today to talk a little bit about this and how and how 9-11 has affected us all. Uh, first things first, I just kind of want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I'm a, I'm a writer. I've written about 25 mostly academic books. I'm a photographer. I'm a distinguished professor at State University of New York at Buffalo. And I edit a political website named buffalorreport.com and spend a lot of time looking at publications about what's going on in America and American life. Uh, Mr. Jackson, now, am I correct in saying that you also have an affinity for some of the pictures of the site as well? I mean, I know you do the photography, but you also, you're also you an expert on the subject of 9-11. Yeah, in fact, uh, about a week after 9-11, I, I, I walked around Lower Manhattan taking several hundred photographs of the missing persons posters that were on the walls all over that area. Those are things that disappeared quickly. But you may recall them. There were thousands of these that families and friends of the missing put up on the sides of buildings in public telephone booths looking for lovers, friends, children, spouses, most of whom were never found. In fact, most of whom the bodies the bodies weren't even found. They were just vaporized that day. And, and, and an amazing set of events were, were September 11th. We don't, we don't need to go too much in the detail, as everyone kind of knows yeah. the order of events that day. But I, I'm more interested in the effects, the after effects of what happened from 9-11 and how it's affected the people in New York City. I had a personal observation. Uh, seven years removed from the date, seven years and one date as I was out there on September 12th, Mm-hmm. Uh, Friday it was a rainy day. It was in the 50s. I went with my umbrella and my camera, um, and I was in awe to see thousands of people walking to and from wherever they were going, and no one looks at the hole. And I and I talked to several people because the journalist in me, I got to walk up to strangers and ask them questions as I did, uh-huh. and, and, and trying to find out what what the hole represented to them as they came to work every day. There was one lady I bought some some clothes at a Century 21, and she rang me up and I asked her. And she flat out told me, I go the other way every day so I don't have to see it. It is evident that, that all of the effects obviously affected this country. Uh, all the effects of that day affected this country negatively. But I think the people within the city of New York, uh, still to this day, seven years later, even though they go about their business, I think uh, it's a part of their everyday life. And I somehow don't feel like the city's going to recover fully until something else is built in that space, in those 16 acres. Oh, I think that's a really important thing that you just said, that until that space is redefined, you, you know, whether as memorial, as building, whatever, you know, there are all kinds of plans of what should go in there, what might go in there. 
But right now, it is uh, a big open scar. Uh, no flowers grow, no children play, no people walk. You walk around it, you don't walk through it. And as you know from having visited it, it's a huge site. It's it's not just a, a place where an ordinary building came down. These were enormous buildings. So it is a, a huge piece of physical memory of what happened on that day. And it's so hard to ignore. I mean, they do have the fence covered, and you were talking about the memorials, Bruce. There were a few up there when I went on Friday, um, but obviously I could count them probably on two hands. And, and a couple of signs of actually people saying missing since September 11th. You know how some people actually do, you know, because a body's not recovered, they continue, continue to consider them missing. And in some people's hearts, even though there's been closure, you know, I guess some of the loved ones of these people who have these signs up, you know, that's how they, that's how they memorialize that person's life is that they're missing from this day. And I found that to be so interesting. I saw the flowers. But again, I repeat to you what was astounding to me as I stood from afar and watched it. And I took pictures of just the people walking by. Hundreds of people walking by, Bruce. No one even looked like like took a gander to see what's going on over there in the hole today, because it's an eyesore. It really the the way they said the two buildings were an eyesore when they were erected and opened for business in '74. It, <laughs> yeah. it, you remember that? I'm one of the people who hated those buildings when they went up. Remember the sun would hit off of it and it just shone. The the way it shined amongst the skyline was so different than the other buildings. Yes. It it just seemed kind of an anachronism. In the skyline of New York, as you had all the old buildings, all the 19th century architecture, and then you had these two buildings that were eyesores in itself. And it took a few years for uh, for, for New York to kind of get used to them. But goodness, did they fall in love with those buildings? I, I think that the love affair with New York and the Twin Towers, um, you, you can forget about the bombing in '93. You can forget about the obvious effects of 9/11. But but years prior, how proud everyone in New York was of how those buildings stood tall and represented. Uh, everything America represented as far as, you know, uh, uh, the economy and, and, and the prosperous country that we live in, but then obviously the pride and joy of New York City. And, and I stood and I watched this, and I just, I, I cannot believe the city where I was born and raised. Uh, the toughness of the New Yorker has just been tested over the last seven years because of this. And, and, and again, I walked out of, this, uh, out of the train station, Bruce, and to see the hole and to see a building from the perspective of walking out of the Fulton County stop yeah. Uh, Fulton, Fulton Street stop, I'm sorry, and yeah. to see the building that I'd never seen before unless I was on the other side of those buildings, uh, on the other side of the Twin Towers, it was just, it took me 15 minutes to gather myself and say, am I really looking at what I'm looking at? Uh -huh. it, it was just kind of, a, I call it an eyesore because that darn hole in the ground is just, it, it's it's like a canyon. It's, 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 I didn't expect it to be as big as it was. Uh, it's awesome. I it really, I mean, it is an awesomely big space. And but you know, you know I wanted to say something about what you said about those people walking by and not looking at it. it. The fact that they're not looking at it doesn't mean they're not seeing it. That they're not aware every time they walk by that it's there. It's it's like not looking at the scar on someone's forehead when you're talking to them. Yeah, it, you know you don't put your eyes at the forehead because you, you you don't want to think about the scar. You don't want the person to think you're thinking about the scar. But you know it's there, uh, and they know it's there. My daughter works in Manhattan, and she saw the towers go down, both of them. And she's never in that part of the city where she doesn't remember that day vividly. And and I got to tell you, when the, and I give my personal perspective as I sat in my home, 
and the report came in that a plane had flying flown into the World Trade Center and I just thought it was some Cessna that lost control and, and, and little did I imagine that everyone my life and everyone's life would change in the minutes thereafter when the second plane plane flew through in your experience because this has become a kind of a, a labor of love for you not just the photographs that you took a week after but obviously the entire 9-11 subject and how it's affected not just the city of New York but this country and 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 the things that have gone on in this country in the last seven years because of those uh, those attacks on the towers I kind of want to get your perspective on where we stand today as a country seven years later well uh, this is a. Uh, I'm going to change phones because this one is making beeping noises at me. Okay, that means it might be running on a battery on you. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Um, I I think it has had profound effects on us. If you recall, only a few years earlier, in 1995, uh, there was an attack on the federal office building in Oklahoma City. Yeah. That was at first it was very terrifying i remember i was teaching that day and uh, somebody came into my class and said the muslims just blew up the federal office building in oklahoma city that was the immediate reaction that it was a, a terrorist attack by outsiders that one turned out to be done by a you know a white catholic kid from upstate new york a a, a gulf war one veteran named timothy mcveigh and and that never made the it made an impact on us but it was it, it was like a terrible air crash it just didn't it didn't sear the national consciousness 9-11 did 9-11 was like pearl many people at the time compared it to pearl harbor it it changed our status about our vulnerability vulnerability about our place in the world about how safe we were. You may remember that for, I don't remember how long it was, there were no planes flying in the sky. The, the, nothing flew, and it, 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 there was a, a, a creepy stillness in a lot of places as things stopped. In subsequent years, there were major changes in American life, and some of them for the worse. Um, we've, we've been in two wars, uh, and we, we seem to be starting a third. A huge amount of our national treasure has gone to funding those wars, and that's money that isn't going and hasn't gone to roads, to hospitals, to, to uh, schools, to all kinds of things. There have been uh, attacks on the Constitution. America was never a country before in which public officials openly admitted they tortured people for admission, and now we are. There's an article in the New York Times today saying American Supreme Court decisions are being relied on by foreign governments about half as often as they were 10 years ago. And in part, it's because of some of what the things I just mentioned. Wow, that's, uh... so, and I live on the Canadian border. I live on Buff in Buffalo. This border was as, as, as it was almost invisible before 9/11. I mean, we just went back and forth all the time. And, you know, it was like going from town to town, like going from uh, New Jersey to Pennsylvania. Right. Now there's all these machines, these inspectors. It's a, it, the, our borders are paranoid. 
and so, so lot, 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 lots has changed in our life. I mean, I, I can't think of anything in my lifetime that has made so huge a change in the quality of life. And, and the fine, well, finally, finally, I, I didn't mean to go on so long. No, but that's fine. Finally, the, um, the cost of gas uh, is a direct result of all this because we're, we're, we've been borrowing so much uh, for national defense that the value of the dollar has gone down, and that's one of the reasons for the escalation in price of oil. And finally, this this wacky financial disaster that is currently going on that nobody I know has yet, nobody has explained it in a way that really makes sense to me. Uh, and it, it, it is still, you know, spiraling out of control, although it's stabilized today. So, it, I think, and I think all of that is connected, and, and it's so the, 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 those 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 attacks by Bin Laden had a huge effect on our life. Now, Bruce, I wanted to ask you something, because I'd be remiss to not ask you this, because personally, like I said, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I went to a, uh, I went to a school named St. Anne's, which is in Brooklyn Heights, is approximately four blocks from the Promenade. And anybody uh-huh. who knows New York City, the Brooklyn Promenade is where many of those skyline pictures were taken as well yep. as from the Brooklyn Pier yep. to catch the Brooklyn Bridge as well on that picture. I am, it, you know, I'm not obsessed about a lot of things, but the one thing I'm obsessed about is the way the skyline used to look. And if you walk into my office here at the Plush Studios here at Atlantic Radio Network, um, it's, it's paying homage to my city, my beautiful city, my New York City. Mm-hmm. And pictures to me capture everything. I have a picture of Times Square in 1940 by Lou Stuman, and I and I have pictures of I have pictures of the Brooklyn Bridge. But my favorite picture is the nighttime skyline of Men, uh, of Lower Manhattan with the twin towers on it because it reminds me of of one beautiful winter evening in 1979 where Larry Milian kissed his first girlfriend at the age of 11 <laughs> in the evening looking at those beautiful looking towers. Looking at those lights at those towers. And, you know, we make a joke about it, and years later I took my wife to New York months before the Twin Towers came down, and it has always been a joke amongst, you know, amongst my friends and family about that first kiss in front of the Twin Towers. Uh-huh. Took her to the Brooklyn Promenade. She couldn't stop laughing and giggling because of the fact that I was taking her to a spot where I'd been and. <laughs> made a stranger take a picture of us and didn't know it was going to be the last time I'd see the towers. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is is those buildings had an, an impression on everyone individually differently, and they affected me in a way. Before they came down, they, they were important to me in my life. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the filming of King Kong, I don't know if you remember that movie in 1976. Yeah, sure. They had a cast calling for anybody in New York that wanted to come out one night. They were going to drop King Kong down and then make everybody, you know, walk towards King Kong. Uh-huh. Little did we know we were part of the end of that movie. And I made the family. I made everybody go out there <laughs> just so I could see the Twin Towers. Obviously, yeah. you can tell, Bruce, that these buildings had an unbelievably positive effect in my life. But the pictures, uh, I'm fascinated by pictures of a beautiful, uh, cloudless day with the Twin Towers standing firmly and standing proudly in, in the Manhattan skyline. And I'm also just as obsessed with the pictures of the tragedy of 9-11 and seeing some of the faces and seeing some of the things that were recounted on that day that help, uh, help me at least remember what that day represents. I guess all of this comes to one question. I still think that this country now, seven years later, has forgotten 9-11. They, not so much forgotten, they've put it to a side, and, uh, and as I feared, it, it was not going to be given its, it, its proper um, 
its proper due. I think you every know, 9-11... I, 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 is, I, don't know, I don't know if I agree with you on that. Okay. Because I, I, I teach young people. I, I mean, I, I teach undergraduates in, in college, which means that when 9-11 happened, they weren't even in junior high school yet, some of them. But I say that were that term, those two words, nine eleven, and they immediately know it. They had none of our associations with those buildings. Uh, most of them didn't see it on television as we did, uh, but they've seen it since. It's been rebroadcast many times, and they they know it was a major thing. I I I I I think Faulkner talks in one place about people experiencing something and how in time it becomes something not on the surface of their conversation, not on the surface of their life, but buried so deep in them, in them it, it, they're, they're never separated from it. And I, I think anybody who ever, and you've done this, I know, flown into LaGuardia coming up the river with those buildings on the left, mm-hmm. We'll, we'll forget that site. And when they went down, that's one of the... I thought of how many times I looked out the window and as we were almost just going by the buildings, they were right over there, just so you could reach out and touch them. <laughs> and two of the most moving memorials, things that happened after it, there was a, a, a New Yorker cover by Art Spiegelman, which was totally black, and it had blacker columns right in the middle it was like a world of darkness in which there was that darker place where the towers had been and there was nothing on the cover except the words new yorker and everybody i know who saw that immediately recognized what it was and the second was the light memorial that what was there for a whole year where from that site from that hole in the ground they projected two huge columns of light into the sky as, as, as kind of a, a, a visual nighttime memorial of what has been there. Bruce, it's an unbelievable subject. I'm up against the end, and I wish I could keep you on more, but you know something? I'm going to be emailing you. This is a topic that consumes me, and I, I'm so happy you were able to come on the Rich Rothman Show today and express some of this with us. Again, Bruce Jackson, uh, thank you so much for coming on our show. We'll be talking to you again soon. Rich is going to watch you on the show as well in the next couple of months, so we will be definitely being in, be in touch with you about this topic, but this has been my favorite topic of the day. No offense to anyone else. I just something that touches my heart. Thank you so much, Mr. Good talk. Good talking to you. Good talking to you, Bruce. Take care. Larry Miliang is going to sign out here from the Rich Rolfin Show on 1360 WKT. It's been a fun two hours. I want to thank... Bruce Jackson, want to thank Ramon Bueno, want to thank Wanda. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Larry Milian signing out. Thanks to uh, Atlantic Radio Network for allowing us to do this. And I got to go. If not, I'm going to get hit across the head. So, go. Bye. See ya. We'll be back tomorrow for more of the good. How you doing? The bad. Peace be with you. The business. Praise Jeebus. This is the Rich Rothman Show on 1360 WKAT. Some Cadillac music.